everybody and welcome to Shut Up and Sit Down, the podcast. The official podcast spin-off of the video review show Shut Up and Sit Down, starring the cast of Shut Up and Sit Down. <laughs> My name is Quiz Quentin Smith, and I'm joined on this podcast by Tom Brewster. How you doing, Tom? Hello, Quentin Smith. I am also a member of the Shut Up and Sit Down video review team, and I'm here to do a Shut Up and Sit Down podcast spin-off special. Which isn't what we usually do. We usually do videos, but today, for one night only, we're going to do... Of like 180th podcast or whatever it is. This is the first one. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about a few board games. We're going to be talking about Mobile Markets, a smartphone ink game. We're going to be talking about the new 20th anniversary edition of Armin Ray. And we're going to be talking about a little game called Mogul. But first, I've got to tell the audience what just happened before we started the recording. Tom and my world just got turned upside down because uh, members of the board game community will know that uh, ranking games out of 10 on Board Game Geek isn't just uh, a fun thing that we do in this hobby. It is actually like fundamental to how board games are sold and published and republished. Um, your rating on board games affects a lot of things. Um, Tom and I have just discovered that there is no limit to the amount of decimal places you can give games when ranking them on Board Game Geek. Mm. Um, I just, as a test, ended up ranking Mogul 7.341 out of 10, and the power has gone to my head. Tom, <laughs> how do you feel about this revelation? I wonder if it's going to be like an alley for people to be able to granularly pinpoint when things they don't like about a game can affect the review score. So like, if your box is dented, maybe you just take 0.01 of the review score, you know? <laughs> Maybe every time you lose a game, you take 0. 0.0001 off of the <laughs> review score. Um, I am alarmed about this, but also there's there's science to be done here because something that Tom and I talk about is that while BoardGameGeek is a 0 to 10 rating, realistically, a game is never rated above 8 and hardly ever goes below six. Mm -hmm. So actually, I think we should be working a lot more with the decimal points within, like between six and eight. Yes. I thought this was going to be a really fun conversation for the start of the podcast. I'm worried we sound like like parodies of ourselves. Turbo actually. nerds. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. But I do still think it's interesting and I'm going to press on. Um, like okay. the space, you're right. The space between six and eight, specifically those two numbers, is more important than any other range. Like you can discount anything above eight; it's a Kickstarter, and it's probably not very good. You can discount anything below six, although some games are in the you know like Twister. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, let me look at Twister, 1966. Oh wait, okay, sorry, I saw it has. I I looked at it and went, oh, it's got a ten, but no, that's just my rating. Four point five. <laughs> 4.5 for Twister. 4.5. So maybe you well, can't entirely ignore the scores below 6, but regardless, the difference between a 6.5 and a 7.4 is the difference between 0 and 100. We can actually fold this into a conversation of our first game. Are you ready to just slap a sting in here and we can we can have a kind of like fusion conversation? We're going stingless. Let's just dive straight into it right now. Oh, you know I get nervous when we go stingless. Okay. The first game we're going to be talking about, which Tom will explain to you in a hot minute, is Mobile Markets, a smartphone ink game, which was released in 2021. And this is a, not a sequel exactly, but like within the smartphone... Oh, I was going to make a joke about the smartphone expanded universe, but I'm actually going to need to explain what I'm talking about. So... In 2018, there was a game called Smartphone Inc. It was a popular board game where players represented smartphone companies selling smartphones at the start of the smartphone boom. I'm boring myself even talking about this game, Tom. This is this is <laughs> wild. Um, but we've not played Smartphone Inc. We'd quite like to because 
relevant to the previous discussion, it has a 7.6 on Board Game Geek with more than 5,000 ratings. My now goodness. That, that's very high. That's nasty. Now, what, what we played instead was the, the spin-off game, which uses a lot of the same art and some of the same mechanics and ideas. We played the new release Mobile Markets, a smartphone and game released in 2021, which has a Board Game Geek rating of 7.3 delivered from more than 500 ratings. Now, you might think to yourself, 7.3 and 7.6, those are those numbers are close. This, this sounds exciting. No, a 7.6 on Board Game Geek is actually excruciatingly high. And a 7.3 means the game... Well, I mean, look, this is not a perfect system. I'm not going to say you should <laughs> always use Board Game Geek's ratings to determine your play and uh -huh. your fun and your life. Uh -huh. However... I saw that 7.3 on my way to Tom's and I went, mm, I worry I'm not going to enjoy this a huge amount. And you know what? I didn't enjoy the game a huge amount. Um, Tom, would you like to explain Mobile Markets, a smartphone ink game? I will explain Mobile Markets, a smartphone ink game. In this game, all the players are phone companies trying to sell phones to people. You've got a huge cluster of human beings under the board who are ready to buy phones. They've got a big red box that shows you how much currency they're willing to pay for a phone from like two all the way up to like eight. Eight whole money for a phone. Can you imagine? <laughs> Uh, so the way the game works is it's actually pretty simple. It's got like eight steps, but the steps are like super easy. And I'm just going to look at the board here so that I can remember them because they've all got quite boring names, but they're all very simple. Planning. What you're going to do is you're going to take these two weird, odd-shaped pads and you're going to sort of stick them together. They're like cardboard... Uh, what they're are phones, they? Tom. They're, they're phones. They're, not they're, phones. they're meant to look like phones. They don't look like phones. They're like a rectangle we need with to a corner cut out of them. I don't want to get people dispirited because there are eight phases to this game, but we are going to talk about this first phase for a long time before we move on because it's so bizarre. They are absolutely... <laughs> yeah, no, imagine a phone with like six icons on the screen and then... Five icons. One well, right, because one of the corners has been sort of nibbled out. Yes. You've got two of these. Chocolate and then bar. They Right. Okay. It's a chocolate bar phone with a bite taken out. <laughs> and then you're going to you're going to overlay these mm -hmm. like in some like kind of like you were I don't know putting your knife and fork together at the end of a meal. That's I'm I'm quite proud of that analogy because that's kind of what it feels like. Except you could flip your knife and fork over and and to and there's a spoon on the icons. other side. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, you kind of clamp them together. You have to have at least one symbol on the bottom tile showing and. Uh, that's it, I think, right? That's those those yeah. you must cover at least one and you must have at least one showing. Other than that, you can do it in whatever configuration that you want. And the symbols on it are gonna give you the sort of currencies, the various currencies the game has, that you're then gonna spend over the next several phases. And that planning phase is like most of the decision is in that one phase, because it then knocks yes. on to everything you do for the rest of the round. Um yeah. the main thing that it's gonna do is gonna determine your pricing. So the next phase is literally just setting your price of your phones to five as a base, plus or minus any up or down money symbols that are showing on your little planning pads. So if you had two up symbols, your phone will cost seven. And you move your little turn order marker all the way over to seven, because cheap phones go first and expensive phones go last. Then you do technology, where you spend the little technology icons you've got on your planning pads to buy new features for your phones that you can then socket in, which will let you access new markets. You've then got the marketing phase, which is the next one after that, where you can buy marketing schemes that will help you reach different kinds of customers. Then you get to a production phase where players are going to put the features onto their phone and they're going to actually build it for the round before then going into sales where players will, in turn order, take customers from the market who are willing to buy the phone that has your combination of price 
and uh, features. So for example, you might have a customer who just requires a phone to cost five. They don't care about anything else. In which case, if you're first, you can take that five customer and you can sell to them and that's all good. However, you might have a customer that will pay eight money for a phone, but they also require that phone to have like, I don't know, NFC or 5G or something like that. And if you've got both those things, you can sell to that person. And you might have people who are super, super, super cheapskates and they'll only pay for really, really cheap and nasty phones. But also they would pay anything if your phone had the one feature they're mega interested in. So there's people at the bottom who would pay two money for a phone. But if it's got like a cool camera and it folds in half, they'll pay eight. And the thing that's slightly weird about this is that the cheapo customers will guzzle up. It's a this is the thing where my teacher's going to sort of break down because it broke down for us while we were playing the game all the time was trying to keep it in our head what customers would buy what people's phones at what kind of prices. In what particular order? Because mm. I got in real trouble when I, I I had a really pretty solid phone at a good price and it was cheaper than anything else on the market. But due to weird priority orders... All the people who rushed to buy my phone first were the cheapskates. The, according to this game, people who are cheap will do anything to get their phone before people with money. Yes. Um, which meant I hoovered up the toilet customers, um, allowing you and Matt to, to reach customers who are willing to pay more, which was not what I wanted to happen. It's a, it's a really strange game. I enjoyed it more than both you and Matt, but... I also think that this isn't a game that I'm like desperate to play again because we finished our game and both of you sort of were pretty done with it by the end and you sort of said, oh, well, of course you can go away and play it with your friends if you want. And I sort of felt myself go, actually, maybe I don't want to do that. It's, I think that the allure of it in terms of its theme and in terms of its ideas, I compared it when you and Matt sat down to a game that we played when we last all got together for a game, which is Brick and Mortar. If you remember that yeah. from podcast and podcast ago, which is another game about like unfettered capitalism, uh, you will create a product or a shop in that game uh, and you will try and shaft your opponents by pinching customers out from underneath them and having the best product at the best time. And this game had some of that energy when I was learning it, but in play, it didn't feel so cutthroat and mean. No, it felt um, primarily like it all hinged on the decision we all made secretly at the start of each round of where we essentially decided whether we were going to have a toilet phone or a great phone <laughs> um, and then suddenly revealed it, which felt um, peculiar to all of us. Like there are a lot of games where players will have a product that they try and then define and evolve over the course of the game to try and access different areas of a market. Um, what felt peculiar about mobile markets is you just throw away kind of any progress at the end of each round. So it's kind of as if Apple had the iPhone one year and then the iPhone two, but then the iPhone two was just cheaper and substantially worse. And then the next year it was the iPhone three. And that was a, actually a really classy model with all the features. <laughs> and then the iPhone four was just like a, a piece of crap that cost $50 again. Um, didn't quite fit the theme, but more than that, it felt weird because it meant that we were all... The biggest decision any of us were making was made completely blind. And then we all revealed simultaneously and, oh, no, you did great. You made the only cheap phone out of three players this round. Mm. Whereas two players were both trying to hoover up more expensive customers. It just felt a little odd, I suppose, is the first word I would reach for. I did really, I think that I'll push back gently on this idea of there not being any evolution between turns. That's something that Matt suggested as well. And I think that I 
do think that this game could have done more to feel like you are like creating a brand because when it does feel like that it's really good like i liked on that first round where you were selling like really cheap rubbish phones i'd got a little marketing thing that meant that i could sell explicitly to like private customers which gave me this kind of vibe of being like a trusted brand because i'd pay out the nose for my phones and no one else's that stuff is fun i think that stuff is is the sort of strongest aspect of of mobile markets is in that stuff um but you're right that like there is that gentle feeling of progression but there's nothing like major you don't feel like you've you know established a particular way of doing something by the end of the game that's dramatically different from everyone else's and you're right as well that so much of the decision is in that first thing that happens and then from there it's just sort of like it's quite it's almost rote in a way like once you've done that planning at the start of the round it feels like a game of process rather than oh my god, I was about to say it feels like a game of process rather than progress, and I wanted to vomit in my mouth a bit. <laughs> but it do. I, it do, and I, I suppose the nicest thing I have to say about it is that it made me want to play its father, which is also, <laughs> a, sen- also a sentence that makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, it made me re- interested what these designs could do if they had a design that was a little bit better received, a little more polished, a little more fun, for want of a better words. And by all accounts, that is the original smartphone ink, um, which I'm still excited to play if I have the opportunity. Um, the worst thing I'll say about mobile markets is, goodness gracious, it's not a good sign when all three players, even on the fourth round of the game, are still getting tripping themselves up over the central puzzle of the game of 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 how the market works we were constantly getting confused about whether cheapskates did or didn't want high prices or whether high-end customers could or couldn't buy cheap phones if it did have the feature or whether that was desirable because i mean the tone of my game was sort of set in the first round where i set a cheap phone and hoovered up lots of customers but didn't make a lot of money because the phones themselves weren't that cheap to make and that didn't feel satisfying. That just felt like I was getting tripped up in the game simulation. I think that that was partly because I did a very bad job of explaining how that market But do you remember when you tried to correct me on my interpretation of how the market worked and you still got it wrong? (laughs) Like, that's such a sign that a game's rules are not intuitive. I don't think these game's rules are bad. I just No, yeah, no, I, I, I understand that. I get what you mean. It might just be all sort of like centered around the fact that this game has this very like sleek, white, clean graphic design that I don't think helps it in some areas like with the way that pricing works i think if it was if there was like a big arrow that shows you in which direction you can sell or if there was something that made it a little bit clearer about how you can sell to each different market stuff i don't know there's there's something about the graphic design of this game that is very clear like in the progression of the phases but you almost don't need it there you need a more sort of like big totemic kind of way of displaying price and displaying what customers are under what price if that makes sense that might just seem like pure waffle but i think there's something about it being so (laughs) clean that kind of works against it in a way well one thing that was nice is that right after we finished playing mobile markets a smartphone ink game we all had the opportunity to uh remember what it feels like when you're playing uh, an economic game that is clean that is clear that is beautifully designed and is fun. Shall we talk about Armin Ray? Yes, we shall. What a game. What a good time we had playing Armin Ray. You're not going to make me go stingless again, are you? I might make you go sting. No, let's. I'll treat you to one. Here you go. All right. The next game we played was Armin Ray 20th Anniversary Edition from Alley Cat Games. And Tom, I have been wanting to play this game for like six years or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so delighted to finally have the opportunity to play the new and beautiful uh, Alley Cat edition uh, with art by Vincent Dutre. 
Uh, this is a game designed by uh, the genius, the, the man himself, Reiner Knizia, and it's one of his classic games that I've not had the chance to play until last week. I was very happy about it. This is a game set in ancient Egypt, a lot like uh, Reiner Knizia's favorite Ra. And just like Ra, you're going to be doing auctions that are just awful. Auctions <laughs> which don't feel quite like any other auctions you've ever played, um, because Reiner is, is just a master at auctions that make you think and make you hate yourself just a little bit. Um, so the way that Armand Ray works is you're looking down at a board with the River Nile on it and, uh, and a bunch of territory that is going to be put up for auction. Um, and these auctions are just really unpleasant. So each round, I believe, a number of areas equal to the number of players are going to be put up for auction. Well, each at each step of each round. So, you know, there's this little bit next to the Nile, which might have a lot of space for farmers, or there's a bit next to the Nile that's going to let you get favors with politicians or whatever. All the territories are similar, but just a little different in what they offer you. Um, and players are going to want them more or less, depending on the state of the game. Um, so you auction them off. And these auctions are really unpleasant because the first bid you can make is zero. The next bid you can make is one. These are all little written down on the auction cards themselves. The next bid you can make is three, then six, then ten. So every subsequent bid is substantially higher than the previous one. You can't just, if someone bids six, you can't bid seven. You have to bid ten, and then you have to bid fifteen. Um, the other unpleasant thing is that when someone outbids you, so let's say I bid one on this area next to the Nile that has a lot of room for farmers, Tom then outbids me with three, I can't go back into that region. I My auction, my bid token, is displaced, and I can't outbid Tom again on that same region that I want. I have to go somewhere else and potentially displace someone else. Um, and these two factors just add up to a game that is fascinating and full of cat and mouse and full of players making bids they don't necessarily want because they're expecting to get then outbid on that region so that they can go and place a meteor bid on a place that they actually do want but if they went there first they might be outbid um is this making sense tom is this making sense it's making it's giving me flashbacks in a way okay good it's a nasty um, auction system it's fascinating um but then what happens after you've uh finished and like finished sweating and you've auctioned off three of the areas around the board players then get the chance to go shopping and shopping is equally idiosyncratic and unpleasant so there are three things you can buy you can buy farmers which are the people who are actually going to let you get more gold back because as you're spending gold on all these auctions and on farmers and on favors um you don't get it back uh until harvest phases which require farmers to get you money um so you're going to want farmers you're going to want stones because only by buying stones and adding them to a region can you turn them into pyramids, and pyramids are ultimately what get you the points that win you the game. And then there are favors, which is a big deck of very satisfyingly designed cards which let you tweak individual phases. For example, you might uh, have a card that means all your farmers are more effective in a particular harvest phase, and you're wondering which harvest phase to use that in. Um, or a card that gives you more teeth during certain auctions. However, when after each auction you're going shopping for farmers and stones to make pyramids and favor cards, um, once again, the shopping becomes more expensive the more of it you get. So if you buy, you know, one or two stones here or there, you only pay one or three coins for each set of stones. That's good. But if you wanted to buy like six stones at once, you would have to pay something horrific like 20 gold for that. Because once again, the price of one stone is one, the price of two stones is three, the price of three stones is six, the price of four stones is ten, and so on and so on. Um, so players are incentivized to buy a little bit of everything all the time, 
which but if for that to be effective you have to you know have planning and you might not also have the ability to buy things depending on the regions you have buying one or two farmers regularly isn't great when you don't actually own any regions that can fit can hold farmers right now um so that's some basics of Armand Ray but then what we'll just add here to finish is that after you've finished auctioning off the entirety of the board all of Egypt which takes maybe 45 minutes um you a couple of absolutely horrific thing happened things happen the first of which is you discard all ownerships of regions all those regions you fought so hard for you're going to take everyone's ownership markers off um and then essentially play the game again and the only thing that remains as you go into kind of act 2 of Amun Ray are the pyramids that people have already built and the money that you have and the favors you have left over in your hand of cards so there's this bizarre thing which i adore i love games that have two phases where the 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 first act of Armand Ray is which is basically playing the entire game is kind of like set up and preparation for the second round mm. um where all the pyramids are already there and you like I went into the second round with almost no money and had to just focus on getting money because otherwise I was going to get my ass handed to me and I've just remembered now um you also pray to Armand Ray but that doesn't happen between act 1 and act 2 that actually happens every round all players do a blind bid auction where you all reveal simultaneously an amount of money that you are all offering to Armand Ray and that determines how much uh, gold everybody's farmers produce for example so if every so if everyone puts in a lot of money worshiping Armand Ray the harvest is fantastic and everyone gets a lot of money back however that benefits the players with more farmers so players are all in this horrific head game trying to determine how much money they want to put into Armand Ray or steal from the offering plate which is a real thing you can do with the twist on all of this that the players who offer the most money to Armand Ray get rewards in the form of farmers of bricks and favor cards that probably sounds like a pretty dry explanation but here's the thing about Rhinoknitia games like Armand Ray or classic Rhinoknitia games I should say they're just phenomenal like <laughs> yeah. this game is is so beautifully balanced and satisfying and thought-provoking and fun and actually pretty straightforward to teach. Mm. Um, I feel like I've been talking for like seven or eight minutes. Tom, what was your take on Armand Ray? I, I think that during the whole of Armand Ray, so I taught this game to you and Matt initially, and I think I was looking at the rules and looking at the stuff on the table and going, this looks bad. Or not that it looks bad, it just looked simple and it looked bland and it didn't look like it had any sort of like zhuzh or excitement and then we played it and it was yeah like phenomenal uh really really interesting and chewy and grotty as a game that makes you have these awful agonizing decisions turn on turn on turn i think it's just so clever um and i i don't know it, it so much of it comes out of in the in the play rather than in the rules i mean first yeah. off those auctions right like those auctions have this real feeling of being able to perfectly place like the exact right bid and have like a tremendous flood of satisfaction when no one outbids you because you know exactly how much everyone has in terms of their money exactly how much is worth and if you're first you can place that bid and it feels like you're just sniping it you're getting in there going just getting that perfect yeah. pitched bid oh delightful but then if you don't do it it feels horrible and in a way that's very very funny <laughs> like we we were making what was one of the regions that we were making fun it was like Buto. there was a region Buto oh lovely yeah there was a, a particular point in our game where the region Buto came up for auction and just wasn't desirable 
and no one wanted it. And the ribbing we gave, <laughs> I believe, Matt when he got stuck with Buto because he was broke. Um, we started calling him Buto Boy yeah. uh, because it, not, it it wasn't just like that we were being mean. It's that that was a consequence of his own lack of foresight. Yes. So bullying felt just terrific because he'd made his own Buto bed and he was lying in it. And we, yeah, it was just, it was just nice. It's just the majesty and the magic that a board game has when it's as intelligently designed and, and, and balanced as Armin Ray or games like Armin Ray. It's just great. I think like it's something about the fact that Armin Ray has such a simple teach and such simple stakes and these very clean, clear sort of like decision trees that you're making during this game where a lot of the decisions you're making are really straightforward and direct. The inflection points, the harder bits, the strategy just comes from what other players are doing. It hinges on predicting and playing around other people around the table. It's not some like massively complicated engine of a game. It's very, very straightforward. All of the the sort of joy of the interaction I mean, all the joy is in the interaction is, I guess, what I'm saying. Where certain players will have sort of come up with these incredibly crafty little schemes for things to go exactly their way. They'll have pre-planned, they'll have gamed the system in ways that are very satisfying. And there's a lot of what we did in this game was sort of just appreciating when someone else did something really good because it's so clear. <laughs> you, know, you, you never have this thing like in other Euro games. You know, in some, in some games where um, in big, expansive, complicated Euro games, Someone says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And they list off a load of things that they're doing. And they say, and at the end, I get 17 money and 40 copper and uh, I make a dam or something. They list off a load of things they do. And you don't care how they did it, but it's impressive that they did it. And you just sort of trust them that they're not like cheating and that they're doing well. Armin Ray is like the absolute opposite of that. Where when someone does something really clever, it's so clear how they did it and why they did it and why it's smart. And that's like, I don't know that that was just so refreshing to have that on the that table. happens a lot in I think Tigris and Euphrates oh, yes. as well. Um, I think, but what I was going to add is that you're right that you know so much of the joy of Armand Ray is just really simple, straightforward interactions between players and the decisions they make. But some of my favorite moments in it came from, and this is true in a lot of Reiner designs. Reiner, Reiner is a designer who lets you do bad. Like, <laughs> you know, so much of Eurogame design now is, you know, everyone will, you know, everyone gets some points. Everyone gets to build something. Reiner's like, nah. Like we all, I think at different points in our experience of Armin Ray realized that just the excruciating pain of running out of money because, and the game's yes. really good at coaxing you into spending money because, you know, it's always, you will always save money if you buy something now. Mm. And, you know, and also all too often there'll be an auction you really want and a land you really don't want. Um, and so we all experienced, I think maybe except for you, Tom, Matt and I certainly had points where we went down to like having one or two coins in hand in a game where you start with 20. <laughs> and um, the way that it's like, just the way that that feels like the game putting you in a shoebox and you're like, oh, I gotta get out of this shoebox. I really <laughs> have to get out of this shoebox because all my friends are making fun of me. Um, yeah, just just really, really lovely. Really lovely game. Um, with some lovely modules we haven't tried as well. Some expansions from Alligat Games that have enabled them to fill the box with plastic miniatures that... Uh, that I, I don't know. I was cynical at first um, because all too often uh, expansion modules for classic games are of, of questionable quality. But um, 
I don't know. I like the game base game enough that I'm really interested to try what Alley Cat are doing, even if it involves large miniatures that seem primarily there to sell the Kickstarter. Yeah, I I I definitely do feel that the weakest part of this is Alley Cat's production of it in a way. I think those modules sounded good. I'm excited that you're excited and I want to give them a go. Um, but this game is up for pre-order at the moment for 70 quid. And I think a lot of that price is because they've gone for and I know we we know we ring this bell a lot. We talk about it a lot, but it's just massive plastic miniatures that could be cardboard very easily, and it wouldn't change much. It's like big plastic pyramids and big plastic bricks that really don't have any place in a game like this. I would so much rather this looked worse and like less, <laughs> you know, like expansive and 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 sort of like full of plastic, and was more like. 40 quid or even 50 quid but 70 when you're definitely paying that extra for plastic miniatures does sting when you don't like them because they don't really add anything yeah yeah counterpoint i've been waiting for this game to come back in stock for a long time i'm delighted that ali cat did it with a production that is you know very solid and mm. does have some nice expansion modules um i could have personally done without the spot uv gloss on some of the cards and the big miniatures However, um, I'm realistic about the fact that if Alley Cat want to turn a profit on a classic game like this, I don't think any, well, I don't think many publishers are able to do that to, for, you know, 40 quid anymore when so many people that's out there fair. Yeah, that's definitely have fair. already, you know, so many people out there who want a copy of Amon Ray already got the Super Meeper edition or, you know, had the old 2002 edition. Um, in any case, it's good. I don't think you've seen the last of Amon Ray on, uh, on shutupandsitdown.com. Keep an eye on the YouTube channel. Ooh. And now, from a discussion of a very good Euro game, let's discuss a super weird one that Tom made us play. <laughs> so after our game of uh, Arm and Ray, we got another two people in to play a game of Mogul. This is a 2015 game that re-implements Mogul from 2002. Uh, it's from Rio Grande. <laughs> it's, it's a small box, and it is unbelievably ugly. Uh, it's got a sort of painterly old man on the cover next to a train. The board is this like tiny grubby map of the United States. All the components are kind of like a bit weird, but I thought this game was a delight. Uh, this was recommended to are you. Me. Wait, are you not going to mention the fact that this looks like a, a tiny cheap Euro and then one of the components is a massive wooden cut? I was going to get to the bowl later oh, sorry, on. Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to reveal, I didn't mean <laughs> to spoil the punchline of this. The bowl spoiler. Yeah, so Mogul inside the box, I mean, the, we'll do a list of the components. It's like some of those classic little red and blue and yellow Euro game houses, some comically small money chips they're so small little wooden <laughs> silver pellets a deck of cards a board and a huge wooden bowl which is a component that like does not need to be in this game like people will have like a bowl somewhere in their house but this specific bowl and <laughs> in this specific game i'm so glad they included it it's maybe the funniest component in a game i've ever seen uh because so what Mogul uh, essentially is, this was recommended to me uh, by a listener of the podcast who said that I should show this to Quinns because Quinns doesn't like No Thanks. And Mogul is like, what if No Thanks, but it has more game? Um, yeah. And that's basically what it is. So in this game, players are uh, 
rail, not rail barons, they're investors in rail, uh, trying to squeeze the most money out of rail before it busts, and then they can invest it all into real estate. That doesn't happen in this game, but I love that it says that in the manual. Just a fantastic <laughs> indictment of boom-bust capitalism. I mean, it does go boom-bust, right? Like, the, there is an abstract bust that yes. happens at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. It's more that like this idea that they didn't need to say all the investors then move their money into real estate, but they did, no. and I'm glad they did. Yes. So the way this game works is every round, a card is going to be flipped from the top of the deck in one of the different colors in the game. Silver, purple, yellow, uh, blue, or brown. Those are the different rail companies that you're going to be abstractly investing in. What you do on your turn is you choose one of two options. Option one is to stay in the bidding, which means you drop a little pellet, one of your tiny chips, into the bowl and then pass it on to the next person. You're still in. You've still got a chance to get this card. That bowl might travel around the table for a few people, or dropping a chip in saying, I want to stay in this auction. Until it gets to someone who looks at that card and goes, actually, I don't want this that much. Instead, I want all of the money in the bowl, which they then tip into their cupped fist and sequester it away to then drop out of this auction and let everyone else fight over the card. Which is hilarious when someone who sat next to you has like spent all of their money and they're looking at that bowl get bigger and bigger and bigger and then it gets to you and you go Ooh, and you tip it all and they want to get out of the auction but the bowl is completely empty so it's worthless for them to oh it's so good so those are the two options put money in and stay in the auction or just take all the money in the bowl and leave the auction that's or you say those are the two options that's almost the entire game it's almost the entire game it's just putting money in this bowl or not once it gets to the last player, so once only one person is left, they get to choose what they want to do with the card. Option one is take the card and put it in front of them. That's now a stock in that company. And when a card is revealed from the deck of that color later on, every person with stock in that company will get a point, which is money, not the same money you're bidding on, a point around a little score track round the edge. Option two is to do one of two things with the card. Either put a little station on the board, which will score in a sort of abstract way at the end of the game, where you multiply the number of stations on a route by... Wait, multiply the number of stations on a route by the number of stations on a route? Never mind. Option number... Yeah, that's that's actually correct. Yeah. Yeah, because if you've got three stations on a blue route, They're then each you worth multiply three it points. by three. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that you can do is you can use that card to sell all of a different color. So for example, all the blue cards have a little silver bar at the bottom. So you, what you can do with that card is you can say, I'm going to use this blue card not to keep it as a stock. I'm going to sell my silver stock. You take all of your silver stock and you sell all of them for points equal to the number of silver stock around the board total. So if there were the maximum seven silver stocks on the board and you sold three of them, that'd be three by seven for 21 points, which is huge. I that's crazy considering when the game ends, you know, and there's this metaphorical bust, those three silver stocks aren't worth 21. They're worth one. three. One, yeah. Oh, they're worth well, one, one each. each. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, obviously, by selling a load of silver stock and removing them from the game, you make silver stock worth less for everyone else. There's this real tension of trying to build up loads and loads and loads of stocks and sell at exactly the right time before they become worthless. And then the other little weird wrinkle is that whatever option you pick, the person who dropped out of the bid just before you, they get the other option on the card, which means they could choose to, if you chose to take it as a stock, they could choose to sell or station. And that is all of Mogul. You keep going until a crash card comes out, at which point the game is over, and that's it. And it is delightful. Yeah, the the Shut Up It's a Den fan um, who told you about this game, uh, told you about it because I said on a podcast that I enjoy No Thanks, which is basically this game but this game has a Euro game bolted onto it. Mm -hmm. um, but I wish there was more game in No Thanks. I 
love this. I think this is this is just a blast. It's exactly what I was looking for from No Thanks. However, we started this podcast by talking about how much Shut Up and Sit Down relies on Board Game Geek rankings, um, just as a sort of, just steer us towards or away from certain games. Proof that Board Game Geek is a liar sometimes is to be found on the page for Mogul, which is ranked 6.8 out of 10, which is just so unfairly low. It should be 7.2 at an absolute minimum. Yeah. So. I just rated it a 10. I just rated it 7.341 as, <laughs> as we talked about at the start of this podcast. Yeah, Mogul's just a ton of fun. I think that that mechanic of like an auction, but you can drop out and get money is so good because it's it just, we talked about, we started this podcast talking about how mobile, mobile markets, a smartphone ink game, which I just had to click and tab over to, to even remember the full name of. Um, is unintuitive in a re- in a way that gets in the way of the fun. Mm. Mogul is unintuitive in a way that's just terrific and hilarious <laughs> because with Mogul, like all these things that are seemingly impossible will happen. Like, you know, you'll put a money in the bowl and then you'll put a money in the bowl and then you'll realize, no, I want to get out and take money actually. But then the bowl three times will be passed back to you with no money in it <laughs> because players keep dropping out. I just think that bowl has a mind of its own, essentially. Like, you can win auctions paying... I I kept getting cards that I paid almost no money for, and I kept putting money into auctions and then somehow just being absolutely screwed it's it's bizarre it very often in this game you'll have turns where you put in loads of money and just get nothing out of it because of the way that people <laughs> drop out tactically just to annoy you and you know i think last yeah. time we did a podcast we talked about taj mahal and we called it sunk cost fallacy the game i think yeah. mogul might be the ultimate sunk cost fallacy the game because when you're in that state where you've put like five chips into the bowl you are just like screaming at the person who's left in the auction being like why won't you die please just leave this is tearing us apart <laughs> it's it's just everything that happens happens in it is funny like you have rounds where you you know you sit down or a card comes out it's blue you really need a blue card and then the bowl gets passed to you and you're just about to put your coin in and you realize there's five coins in that bowl i'll, I'll take that actually that like you meet your plan just vaporizes in thin air depending on how poor you are yeah i'll also point out there at one point during the game you can voluntarily hammer your score by three points you go back you go back three points on the score marker and receive three coins is it Tom? yeah it's a pathetic amount of coins and we did it all almost immediately <laughs> like it, because when you well partially due to one tom brewster who thought it would be really hilarious to hoard all the money in the game <laughs> did that end up paying off for you i, I can't remember i won so yeah oh, it did, did. You? It wow. was I, I I really did feel like completely evil in those first few rounds when I, I strategically dropped out at the perfect time and just didn't take anything. So that <laughs> there were like four rounds where all of you just had nothing. It was like you were throwing pennies at these auctions before having to drop out because you just had nothing. But then it didn't really do me that good in the long run because it meant that like, I don't know, just like I would win auctions, but it still cost me like a fair amount because I don't know. It was, it's it's so soupy the strategy in this game, right? Like it's really really hard to like tell. Oh, it's in, it's impossible to even tell how long the game's gonna go on for, <laughs> or how what the value of a coin is, or what a good score is. Like it's just it's like the the Eurogame equivalent of that scene from. Oh, I want to say like I don't actually know the movie, but movie, but I've seen the meme on TikTok so much. You know the sci-fi movie where someone's banging on a pane of glass at their past self and trying to prevent like the timeline from going a certain oh, way. Oh, is that like Interstellar? 
Interstellar, yeah, that's it. Um, uh, but they can't change time. That's what it feels like to play Mogul. You're like, <laughs> it's a Euro game where you're banging on a pane of glass just trying to affect the game. And there's almost nothing you can do. Um, okay, so here's the question I've got for you, Tom. Um, usually with Shut Up, like this game is categorically not in print anymore. It's yes. from 2015. It looks like balls. <laughs> um, it's a small <laughs> box with a wooden bowl in it. Um, I love Rio Grande Games for publishing it. I'm sad it didn't, you know, do tremendously well for them. But clearly you and I think it's a blast um, and a really fun novelty to bring to your board game group, group. Um, whether they played No Thanks or not. However, like, this is a game I would, unusually for Shut Up to Down, encourage people to go to secondhand board game stores like you did, you know, eBay or, or Board Game Geek Marketplace or whatever, to hunt down a copy of Mogul. Now, I would like to ask you what you paid for it, first of all. Yes. I pay, I what think, hold on, I can find out exactly how much I paid for it. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a disappointingly large amount of money. I will say that the person who recommended that uh, I, I get a copy, they said that you can find it in the US for like very cheap. You can find it for like $15 or something like that. Wow. Um, which is, you know, I paid, what did I pay? Here we go. 32 pounds. Oof. Woof. Okay. Um, so I, but I don't think you're foolish for 32 pounds. You can't put a price on laughter like we had playing <laughs> the game of Mogul. <laughs> and also like if we end up driving the price up, that's fine for you because it's in your collection now. So what I want to ask you is what is an amount of money you think this game is worth if people are hunting for it online now? 35 pounds. I was going to say 35 pounds. That's, that's crazy. That, yeah, That's the top end. I wish that it was cheaper and I'm very glad that it was good because if it was bad, I would be fuming <laughs> at this fan of the show for recommending it. Who described it as a personal no thanks inspired revenge quest. Wow. I think yeah, it was a little yeah. too much. I mean, I don't think it was too much because I'm going to continue to play and enjoy this game, but it would be too much if I had a bad time. And who knows? Maybe listeners to the show will have a bad time with Mogul. It all depends on how soon they are listening to this podcast, because I think almost anyone listening to this podcast now, based on our, our reach, could, if they scramble, get a copy of Mogul, play it, and then if they don't like it, sell it in a month. For a huge profit. Yeah, that's what, we're, that's what yeah. we're advertising here. That's what we're really? about. Uh, yeah. But let me look up £35 uh, pounds in dollars, according to the current exchange rate. That's that's $44.26 if you're an American listening to this. That's the price that we but think it, this game is worth. But it sounds like people can get it for like 15. So get yeah, it for that. At which point, bargain, absolute bargain. Absolute bargain for Mogul. So you'd be a real mo we could turn how oh, I hope that a real life Mogul doesn't listen to this and buy like 100 copies and then make, you know, thousands of dollars. Uh, our our but, sort of defense for that is just being like please don't yeah, please don't. But please don't would, do that. It would be in the spirit of this game. P please don't. <laughs> Tom, have you seen what the old edition of Mogul looked like? Just the big trade edition. Yeah. Oh wow. The, I tell you what. Like the the <laughs> when you're when you're shopping for Mogul, um, just be careful that you don't end up getting the 2002 version, which is so ugly. It's, oh it's my ferociously God. ugly, and also I think it's also a bad game as well. Again. This uh, friend of the show now who uh, messaged me gave me a handy guide where they wrote the word bad on top of the old edition of Mogul and the word good <laughs> on the 2015 edition of Mogul. So follow that okay. advice only by the good 2015 edition with the nice smiling man on the front. Uh, Tom, I'm excited to come to your house tomorrow. Oh, why is that, Quince? Because we're going to play Beast. Oh. 
hidden movement game in which I will be playing a wolf or perhaps a boar or maybe a, a frog. And then you and your girlfriend and your housemate will be playing three hunters chasing me down. Is in that the, the way woods. we're going to do it? Well, you just, I mean, honestly, we don't have to. I think we should roll like the to. dice for who gets to be the frog. Uh, yeah, that is fair. Uh, and you know what? Honestly, I can't even, ordinarily with hidden movement games, you know, being the person who moves hiddenly is like quite complicated. So it's recommended the person who teaches the game does that. Um, however, I can't with a straight face say that Beast is complicated enough that I, I should play the Beast. <laughs> so I suppose it'll it'll come down to a dice roll. Find out more about that on an episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast near you. I want to win that dice roll. Thank you for listening and a goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. You, we already said goodbye. Oh, shit. <laughs>